welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 70. A lot to talk about this week, as there always is. Things seemingly changing every single day. Uh, it's becoming ever more surreal by the day, I have to say. But uh, in such times of surreality, we need outposts in the wilderness like Counterpunch, those independent media outlets that we really can rely on for the kind of analysis to help us make sense of all this craziness going on in the world. I mean, we are embarking on the era of Trump. We are casting off the uh, the, the the dross and the flotsam and the jetsam of the Obama administration, and uh, yet somehow none of this feels particularly good and we need counterpunch we need outlets like that in order to provide a space on the left for us to give the kind of critical examination of these issues that is so desperately needed uh eight years ago 16 years ago we also embarked on these bizarre political moments these bizarre political transitions and for my money counterpunch was so necessary then and it's all the more vital now support counterpunch with a subscription to the print magazine you'll find uh excellent writings there each and every issue including from people like yvette carnell who's in the current issue of the counterpunch magazine and uh, also of course you can support Counterpunch by giving a donation through the PayPal feature on the website or any other um, avenue, including picking up the phone, including smoke signals and carrier pigeons and all sorts of other modes of payment. And uh, finally, I would urge people, if you like the show, if you like the kind of stuff I'm trying to put out every week, please do uh, share this around to your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, your enemies, your ex-boyfriends, and all those people that you know in your in your uh, networks. Please do share it. Give us positive reviews on iTunes. Spread it around on other platforms. Whatever you can do, greatly appreciated. We're not uh, charging anything. There's no commercials. There's no fancy gimmicks. So, you know, you do what you can. Anyway, let's turn to the guests this week. In fact, I'm lucky enough to have two returning guests this week. I, I really couldn't think of two better people to have on uh, to discuss the subject of Obama, Obama's legacy, uh, perspectives on Obama in the waning days of his uh, tenure as president. I'm very happy to welcome back onto the show uh, Yvette Carnell. She is the founder of BreakingBrown.com. She is also the host of her own call-in show you can find it via breakingbrown.com or on her YouTube channel and also I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Pascal Robert he is a writer for Black Agenda Report you can find his stuff there uh, regularly Yvette Pascal welcome back to the show thank you for having me Eric thanks we have for having me as well Eric um, so I want to begin with a general uh, question that is so utterly obvious as to be almost insulting, and yet I'm going to ask the question anyway. Here we are, it's the end of 2016, we're obviously in this Obama legacy mode, right? Every news channel is going to give us all these polished packages about Obama, Obama's legacy, looking back on the last eight years. I want to just ask point blank, I'm going to start with Yvette, point blank Yvette, give me your honest and uncensored, unfiltered thoughts about Obama looking back on these eight years. Well, when I look back on these eight years, the one thing that stands out the most for me is that the privileged people in this country are doing better than ever. 
You know, Obama was supposed to come in and be the be the president of hope. He came in on the change we can believe in hope. And now I think we're in a post hope era. I think that's where we are. You know, the median income is still well below where it was in 2007 for Americans. And people just don't understand that. So when I look at it, I look at if, you know, we had we had we had a shot. I thought of Obama. The reason I voted for Obama, even given what I knew about him and questions that other people had raised, we had one shot to 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 kind of get this guy in here who wasn't like the other presidents. This was a black guy. You know, he came from a you know, his mother was a single mom, as we've been told. And he what he did, he kind of pulled the rug out from up under us. He saved the financial industry and didn't do anything for Main Street except decimate us. So I don't even think of Obama. People say Obama did a little bit. Well, Obama did a little. I think Obama, I think Obama neutralized neutralized working people's politics, especially black politics, and left us far worse off than we were before he came. Tough to disagree with that. Pascal, your take on uh, Obama these last eight years and just what's percolating in your mind as we look back on all of this? Well, the way Obama figured in my mind is that basically he did the job that he was manufactured to do. Barack Obama was a creature of Wall Street and finance capital from the beginning. There's a great video of him you can find on YouTube at the uh, Hamilton Group initial meeting. He was the only U.S. senator there, and he's basically genuflecting to the Robert Rubin agenda. He was close friends with Michael Froman, who was his law school buddy, fellow law review, Harvard Law Review, a student as well. Who Michael Froman was good friends with Bob Rubin's son, Robert Rubin, of course, former Secretary of Treasury under uh, Bill Clinton, one of the most nefarious Secretary of Treasury has ever had, who was a who was a chief head of the deregulation that led to the subprime mortgage crisis. So these are the people that basically are in Obama's ear in 2005, 2006, even before he becomes president. Considering that he he received more Wall Street financing than any president we had in American history at that time in 2008. Considering also he got more money from the oil lobby than any president in the prior 20 years, including Republicans. So when 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 you have you ever heard have you ever heard of Democrats out? Out uh, fundraising with the energy industry, uh, Republicans, particularly those going back 20 years before him. So what we have to understand is that Barack Obama was basically a manufactured creature of Wall Street from the beginning. WikiLeaks has already exposed that that same Citigroup executive, Michael Froman, chose his whole cabinet. So in that consideration, the fact that he came in, you know, protected the banks, uh, uh, executed the TARP allowed them to run amok. Quantitative easing has basically been pouring money uh, into, into, into the economy to the detriment of the working class support and the middle class in this country. No major job jobs bill in eight years for a man who came in and had complete control of the Senate and the House, had expended no political capital using the bully pulpit to push a jobs agenda at all any time in his presidency. The, you know, his greatest legacy thus far is Obamacare, which as of this month is going up 22 to 24% in its premiums and is already shown to be problematic because it has no cost, no cost controls. So what we see in Obama is basically neoliberalism in blackface, fired teachers of color than any president in American history, charterized education all over the country, highest number of public schools closed all, all over the country, record numbers of po- po- poverty rates 
in the United States during the Obama administration that only recently slightly, slightly uh, started to decrease. Highest child, black child poverty rate in 40 years, up to 37%. For me, Barack Obama was not only a disaster for African Americans, he was a disaster for the working class and the poor, while the Dow went almost uh, over 19,000. So in terms of what he did, he was the creature of the individuals that created him, which again was the financial sector. Uh, as, as a Rubenite, he is an acolyte of Robert Rubin, who totally, totally cannibalized this economy with his deregulation. So we got what we didn't know we paid for, but what we really did, which is basically a man who came into office to pimp out a civil rights black struggle legacy to be a complete tool of the financial service industry that had historically gutted the black community anyway and do so with a smiling face, charming wife, and a good jump shot. That's basically what we got in Barack Obama. Well, and I want to follow up with that before I go back to Yvette. Um, Pascal, I want to ask this question, though. Everything you said is, of course, true. But what I would like to know is, do you think that Obama was the one that they needed to be able to get away with all of those things? In other words, could a a, a cut-and-dried, you know, uh, cookie-cutter white Democrat or white Republican have ever gotten away with all of those things? I, I have been saying for quite a long time that Barack Obama was the biggest gift to the ruling class and power elite than any president in recent history because what Barack Obama did is that he, he used his his uh, exotic racial narrative. You know, I'm biracial, my mom was white, my dad was African, I've got this really beautiful African-American wife, I grew up in Hawaii and Indonesia, I'm post-racial, multiracial, some racial, racial today, racial tomorrow, not racial yesterday. I mean, you know, he, this kind of amorphous, very exotic racial narrative, not only do I think is important to selling this, this, this pitch, what it does, and this is what's particularly about Obama, if you ever notice Obama talk about his presidency, he always talks about how him, himself, and what he can bring in terms of bringing people together. For example, you read Ta-Nehisi Coates' speech with the pablum that he wrote, My President Was Black. It is, it is always focused on how Obama's particular type of blackness, his multiracial blackness, his growing up with Midwestern Kansas parents, or, you know, gives him this and this ability to kind of be like the, the, the biracial whisperer into the hearts of white folk because they'll feel safer with him, which I think is a load of garbage. What it really is is that basically there is an assumed progressiveness that comes along with his racial narrative that makes it hard to believe that this charming black man with a brown wife is a Wall Street pimp, that he's basically a, a pawn of, of, of the financial service, services industry that completely gutted the, uh, you know, America overall and particularly African Americans. So what happens is that this kind of smooth, charming, kind of caramel figure walks into your house, and you don't want to believe, no, he's not a bad guy. Come on, that's Barry. We know him from back in the day. He's a wonderful guy. And, of course, it, it works perfectly to neutralize the sensibilities, particularly of the left and liberals, who normally would have questioned policies. I mean, it's very simple. What happened to the anti-war movement under Obama? It disappeared. That's right. It's gone. Why is it gone? Because not only is it that he's a Democrat, it's because the charming narrative of having this black face in a high place, being able to possibly drone, drop drones on Somali children, escapes the consciousness of most Americans because they don't see it as possible. 
Yvette, I want to give you a chance to respond to what Pascal was saying to build on that. And then also just to ask this question, was Obama, was Obama a product of timing? In other words, would Obama have been foisted on the United States in the way that he was had there not been the dark days of the Bush era? In other words, does hope and change ring as true in 2008 if it wasn't coming on the heels of Bush? Well, well, let me just let me just piggyback on something that Pascal said before I get to that. Pascal said something very important in terms of what happened to what happened to the war movement. Well, I would say that about a lot of movements. What really happened to the labor movement? I mean, we saw Uber come in. We saw there there are no protections. They say this is sharing, so you don't have to do anything. These people can be they call it deactivated. That's how they fire them. You know, so and you see all of this. This came about during Obama's era. He didn't push for any kinds of protections for those people. He just, none of that happened. Even when you look at anti-war movement, it's not just because of, it is because of who Obama is, but there's also been something going on with the, with the white left and even white liberals in the sense of they've been made to feel that any criticism of Obama is racist. So anything you say about Obama, if you're full-throatedly criticizing him, is interpreted as racist. So that neutralized even 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 criticism coming from the white left and even some 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 white liberals who are who are left of center, who would normally try to do that. I remember Melissa Harris Perry when when it was time for Obama to be reelected in 2012, she came out with her own little thing and said, "Well, you elected you reelected Bill Clinton and 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 he wasn't doing that great. So if you don't reelect Barack Obama, that means you're that means you're you're racist." So all these white people who came out and voted for Obama, if they didn't want to reelect him, they were all of a sudden racist. That's also how he neutralized he neutralized politics, you know, progressive politics and leftist politics. What I will say about timing, I think timing matters for everything. I think what these people were looking for, the people who supported Obama were looking for someone who could push this bailout through. They knew it was coming. And what people don't, what some people don't realize is that Obama was on the phone. I don't know if people remember the first time they tried to, to, to do this, first of all, it didn't go through. Like the, they rejected this bailout package. Obama had been on the phone even before then, calling people and after then calling Congress people saying, hey, you got to do this. And the incoming black president's on the phone saying, hey, you got to do this. You got to do this. Even while Bush was still there, hey, I'm, I, you, you got to push this through. He's the guy who did this. And he's the guy who gave these bank bailouts and didn't tie anything to them in terms of working class people. This was the time to get it done. And they knew that they couldn't put the same old, same old in there and, 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 and get this redistribution of wealth from the bottom to the top. With, with just a regular white guy. So they had to do something different. What they did was give them somebody and people who people trusted because something is supposed to be inherently progressive about a black face. You know, the, you know, the, the, the civil rights movement, the struggle of black people makes people think that we're inherently, you know, we're inherently just more progressive than, than our white counterparts. And we can't be manipulated as much as our, as our white counterparts. And that just has not turned out to be true in terms of Obama. People forget that this is the guy who opposed a moratorium on like home foreclosures. That's something that he would have done that didn't require Congress. So I'm always moved by people who say, well, you know, he, he it was an obstructionist Congress. No, it wasn't. There were a lot of things that he could have done that he did not do. And that's always a problem. This is the same Barack Obama who told us, you know, if 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 I were if, if I were in this office, you know, a couple decades ago, I would be a Republican. He said, I'm really a Republican, but the Republican Party has moved so far over. You all don't think I am. He said, I would have been a considered a Republican during the time of like Nixon or whatever. And he's true. But he's telling you who he is. He told us before how much he quoted Reagan and all those things. He always wanted a grand bargain. He 
gave away tax cuts to try to appease the Tea Party. That's who he is. But yes, he did come into that space because of timing. We needed, they needed to put a black face on all of this redistribution of wealth from the bottom to the top. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, what we were calling it at the time, um, and I'm, I certainly didn't coin this term. I know a lot of people used it, uh, that Obama was a facelift for imperialism, an imperialism that was in desperate need of a facelift after it had been so thoroughly discredited under Bush. I mean, uh, you know, in the lead up to the Iraq war, for instance, I mean, you had, you had hardcore U.S. allies publicly at odds with U.S. foreign policy. I mean, the Bush administration was in many ways a train wreck for a lot of the, uh, call them imperial policy for the global chessboard, as Brzezinski would call them. And so in that sense, certainly, I think that Obama was not only needed, he was needed in that moment. He was needed in that moment in a way that he wasn't present. I think he, he was needed in that moment in a way that he was not present. And he, not, he had never had any intention to be present in that way. I think, I think what people don't understand about Obama is that he's not anchored in this sort of progressivism. He certainly isn't anchored in any kind of leftist politics, but not even in like traditional traditional progressive or liberal policy. He's not even anchored in that. You know, this is a guy who I say again, this was a guy who quote, who spends a lot of time talking about talking about Republicans and talking about consensus, talking about meeting in the middle. I don't think he's really someone who is made of of anything. I don't think this is a person who is made of anything. You know, and, and, and but he could get some things through. Like people say, well he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have the will to fight. Well he fought for TPP really, really hard. Until 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 Trump got elected, he fought really, really hard for that for that blue that blue alert for police officers. He fought really hard for a lot of stuff. He just didn't fight really hard for anything that would benefit working class people. I think that's absolutely- he also had no problem using the sequester to basically try to force his own party to 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 to, to, to kowtow to a grand bargain to cut Social Security and Medicare. So you tell me what president comes into office, and by the way, Obama had been wanting to cut Social Security and Medicare since 2007. What what Democratic president comes into office with the agenda to gut the 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 uh, the marquee? Uh, policies and programs of the Democratic Party that still have very high favorable weights, and not only wants to cut those 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 programs, but will implement something like the sequester, which had devastating effects for poor people in this country in terms of co- gov- cutting government benefits to try to force his own party into into gutting those those uh, those New Deal programs. Not to mention that's what Barack that's what Barack Obama was. Don't forget, this is a man that upon winning his election in two thousand eight. Who are the first people that he goes to consult with? Does he go to consult with the union union heads? Does he go to consult with the anti-war movement? Does he go to consult with environmentalists? No. He goes to consult with who? A whole cabal of right-wing media figures, from Charles Krauthammer to, to, to David Brooks, to all of these right-wingers, to, to basically assure them, hey, listen, I'm not a ba- as bad of a guy as you think I am. We can work together. And that's his whole presidency. This notion that Obama was obstructed by Republicans is a farce. And the, the proof positive of that is that the 2010 election, when he was had the midterms going on, he basically campaigned for no, for no one. There has not been a single mid- midterm in which Obama used the bully pulpit to 
to force the exigency of keeping Congress under the Democratic control upon the consciousness of the American people. And the reason that is is quite simple. It's always been more interested, in, interested he's always been more interested in triangulating with Republicans than working with Democrats. You remember when, his, when Robert Gibbs, his chief of his, uh, his, uh, his media, his media uh, uh, spokesman, in the, during the first term was laughing at things like, "Oh, this whole notion about having uh, single payer is ridiculous. What do they want? Our health care like Canada? Oh, forget about the public option. They were they were absolutely trolling the left and liberals and making it seem like all of these things that he initially campaigned on were jokes. Like you know, real people don't care about that, that stuff. And the reason that is is quite simple. Barack Obama, and according to his own words, has always been a blue dog Democrat, which is basically a Republican who will not use the N-word. That's all he is, and that's all the Democratic Party has begin, become. There are Republicans who don't use racial expletives. And as a matter of fact, in many ways they're worse, because they will basically take policies that Republicans have been trying to do like for years, like charter schools, like imperialism, and they will do a much more sloppy job at it, because it's more important for them to con you into believing that they're doing good, while Republicans will bring the hammer down and you at least know the hammer is coming. I mean, Barack Obama did the impossible. He literally is the only person I can imagine who had a worse foreign policy than George W. Bush. How is that? How, how does someone do that? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it it takes a certain it takes a certain level of uh, expertise to be able to, to 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 mess up that badly. Now, and you brought up a great point, Pascal. It's exactly the point I wanted to bring up. If we needed proof that Obama had no interest in actually using his political capital to achieve something, the proof we had in two thousand nine, he wins election, he comes into the White House, is a Democrat majority in in both houses of Congress. They could have pushed through single payer health care system. They could have pushed through the public option. They chose not to and instead give us this Obamacare, which essentially amounts to an an insurance industry bailout. So you had Wall Street get its bailout. You had uh, Detroit get its bailout. And then the insurance industry gets its bailout. But of course, there are no bailouts for working people. There are no bailouts for the poor. There's certainly no bailouts for black America, which has suffered significantly under Obama. And that's where I want to where I want to ask you, uh, Yvette, this question. Can you tell me a little bit about how you view this sort of what I would call a sort of cognitive dissonance within much, maybe not all, but much of black America about Obama. In other words, where all material indicators are going down or, or, or getting worse, be it child mortality, infant mortality, you know, uh, nutrition, uh, literacy rates, what have you, median incomes, all of these things, they're, they're declining, they're getting worse. And yet Obama is not only is he a champion of black people, at least in the, in, in seemingly in their context, consciousness, but that he will be elevated into the pantheon of black icons. I mean, how does that feel as a black person? I, I mean, it's disheartening, but I'm, I'm not defeated, but it is disheartening. We have, look, we have a mix of something going on here. There's a mix of symbolism and there's also a mix of media manipulation. Okay. The media will come on and show you, oh, look, Obama is commuting, you know, the sentences of, of black men. And, and so they present this as if this is this resounding success, yeah. as if Obama is finally doing something for, for African-American men in this country. Well, the truth of the matter is it was the Obama administration that, uh, you know, the, the you know, that, that, that said that said in terms of what was the, the, the Fair Sentencing Act, that people that black men wrongly sentenced under that act 
should stay in jail. Like they went to court. So they like, sued. They yes, sued they, they to keep that. them in jail. They sued to keep them in jail. They did that. That was the Obama administration. Nobody made them do that. Judge and the, and the appeals courts, they were disagreeing. They said, yeah, if, if, this is, if this was unfair today, it was unfair retroactively. So we're going to go back retroactively and we're going to do that. And the Obama administration sued. That was the Obama. But nobody, t- nobody in mainstream media talks about stuff like that at all. So the only presentation that we're given of the Obama administration is that they did this wonderful thing. We talk about Obamacare, but we talk about there was an article in 2014. I'm not sure if the numbers changed, but there was an article in 2014 from Bloomberg of all people who showed that the, it said Obamacare is benefiting everybody except black people. But if you listen to people like Al Sharpton, that's all they talk about. That's all I talk about. That's the one thing that they hang on about. Look at look at Obamacare. What are you talking about? And the, and the premiums, African Americans have, uh, you know, are poorer than they were in 2007. And we look at the premiums. A lot of people can't afford those premiums. And this is something that Obama himself said when he was campaigning against Hillary. But the other thing is symbolism. The symbolism of seeing this black family in the White House and seeing seeing this, you know, black love and all this kind of stuff mask the fact that 37% of black kids live in poverty. It masked that fact. You know, when you look at the fact that he had no no legislation targeting working class people, targeting African-American people, he said one boat lifts all ships. He started dissing Black Lives Matter. The only thing he did for black people was an unfunded mandate, which was my brother's keeper. You know, all of that is masked by the fact that we're not supposed to talk bad about about our black president. And so we don't think about the fact that like America has incarcerated blacks at a rate six times higher than South Africa during apartheid. That's not something that we want to talk about. So I think that goes to media manipulation in terms of how they present Obama. Like you have to really dig into the data to understand how awful Obama has been for the black community and for black politics. He has neutralized black politics, being the only president not to have a black agenda. Every other in, in modern history, every president had a black agenda. It is intentional that Obama never had one. And so that but between that media manipulation and our need to have this black, see this black president as having done well, as having done good for us, we can't, most of us still can't take a step back and say, wait a minute, let me, let me have a clear eye look at this data and let me see this for what it is so that I doubt we have another black president, but even if we do, I won't be, I won't be fooled by identity politics again. We haven't reached that point yet. Pascal, you want to jump well, there's, in? There's something that's very important about the, what, what Barack Obama means in the political psyche of African Americans is something that unfortunately was very, very cognizant in the people who manufactured this confection, this neoliberal confection called Barack Obama, is that they they played on a concept that has been plaguing African Americans for quite a long time. I actually wrote a piece about it. I call it the politics of redemption, which is the idea that there is a need for black people to be validated, to be validated to white people by demonstrating that they have the capacity to achieve on equal levels of white folk. So we need these, these symbolic, the first black this, the first black that, to be able to say, look, you know, this, this one is going to show them that we can actually brush our teeth and chew gum at the same time, and they should accept us. It's a completely defeatist, pathological way of looking at yourself via a system that is oppressive to you because you are now 
leveraging upon that system the right to dictate when your humanity should be given. And if you need any evidence that that is an actual, a, a still existing aspect of the way in which members of the black community, not all black folk, particularly middle class and those who speak from those perspectives, view uh, uh, Barack Obama. Look at Tyler Heasey Coach's piece, the, you know, My President is Black. It is replete with this whole kind of, oh, yeah, they're never going to see a black man like this again, Harvard, biracial family, this need to feel like he is the representation of all of us, and he validates and he vindicates all of us. Is the most insipid, insipid way of looking at this, these individuals who are total charlatans manufactured to completely deceive the black community and pimp out a whole noble history of racial struggle just to be a tool of the financial services industry to the detriment of those same communities. And what is sad is that I truly believe that... You know, if you look at people like, you know, Martin Luther King, you look at people like uh, H. Rap Brown, they would have had the consciousness to see through an Obama because you read their writings. If you read Martin Luther King's uh, piece, he has a piece called Black Politics Defined, where he talks about these manufactured leaders that always get their money by white sources who are never really uh, uh, heralds of a new day but representatives of the old one. You listen to H. Rap Brown when he's a video, there's a video, a very, very good video on YouTube. H. Brown, of course, was one of the ministers of the Black Panther Party, and he says if we had a black, even if we got a black president, it would be the job of the black community to fight him, because it is the system that dictates the actual way the president runs, and the president works on the military-industrial complex, and his edicts are to make war for profit, so we would have no obligation but to fight him. That type of consciousness is lost, unfortunately, after 40 years of a lack of effective, mobilized uh, uh, politics in the black community that uh, sadly has become demobilized particularly in the last 35 or 40 years in the post-Reagan era, to the point where now we're taking someone who does not have any organic connection to the black political tradition, the black radical tradition, the civil rights tradition, who is literally a manufactured confection out of nowhere, a foundation-hatched you know, experiment you know, you know, Barack Obama, Cory Booker, Adrian Fenty, Arthur Davis. It's like these five little neoliberal, neoliberal Ivy League clones that were put together to all push to, as a test to see which one can rise to the top to push this finance capital neoliberal warmongering agenda down black folks' throat to be able to pimp out that legacy to everyone clap and say, yes, we can, hope and change, as if this Negro is some kind of representative of something progressive when he's representing the most nefarious forces that have always ground the black community to powder. I find his whole enterprise completely noxious. But you know, I would say I would I would add one thing to Pascal said. I think I think Barack Obama is actually worse than Cory Booker, and in one way, you know, Cory Booker is who he is in terms of his affect, in terms of how he behaves. Obama adopted this what I believe this whole fraudulent persona in terms of like what Tanahasi Coates said in his piece about Obama downloaded black culture. So this is a guy who went, yeah, I like basketball. What's up, man? I want to, you know, I got, I, I was hollering at JC, give you the pound and all that stuff. He basically put on his cloak, which really I don't think is who he was, in order to kind of convince black people because he needed the black vote. 
So it's convinced black people, hey, I, I'm just like you. I like the same things you like, man. I'm, I'm, I'm. So I think in that way, in terms of how, you know, in terms of who he was, in terms of how he tried to kind of channel, you know, King or MLK in terms of how he spoke, I think he's actually worse in his presentation and in terms of the deviousness that he used. But I think the one thing that we found out is the one thing that black people have to face is, is you know, I, I would say, you know, black visibility is not black power. And that's something that we have to come to terms with. Just because you have somebody in that place that looks like you and sounds like you and listens to Al and sings Al Green and sings Amazing Grace does not mean that that person has policies in place to benefit or improve the material condition of your life. There's no doubt about that. And uh, one of the one of the things about Obama that I think is really, I think, something that needs to be studied carefully. And I'm not sure that anybody has done that to this point, And that is a careful examination of how Obama was able to allow people to project fictional beliefs onto him like some kind of an empty vessel. I remember in 2008 when Obama was on the stage in Chicago at one of the Democratic debates talking openly about expanding the war in Afghanistan, about expanded drone bombings, and that he wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, call the leader of a foreign country if he was deciding to bomb them, that he would consult his lawyers and what have you. And I think Dennis Kucinich actually called him out on that on the stage in 2008. But the point is, liberals who were going gaga over Obama weren't hearing that. They were hearing, I'm the peace candidate. I'm going to end the wars. I'm not going to expand them. I'm going to end them. When in fact, he was saying the opposite. This kind of cognitive dissonance, this is something that I think is really important to examine, not only in trying to understand Obama and what Obama did these last eight years, but I think it's equally important in trying to understand Trump and the Trump phenomenon and what projection can do for a candidate well I, th- I think i think there's i think there's definitely i think there's definitely some truth to that you know I, I i think but i think i don't even think trump was necessarily as good at that as obama was right trump did say i'm going to build a wall i'm going to i'm going to renegotiate the tpp and get rid of nafta there were some specific things obama just had like specific we need to get health care for everyone and not tell me well exactly how is that going to happen so what you will have with Trump, if, if he doesn't come through, is he just lied. Obama didn't. Obama's not lying. He just gave you these broad strokes of things that oh, he, he gave you his he gave you like these idealistic things that everybody wants. Like you go up to anybody, Republican or Democrat, and they say, do you want people to die on the street? Except for the people in that Republican uh, uh, <laughs> symposium that time doing that debate who clapped when that was said. Most people would say, no, I don't want that. So he just appealed to everybody's best angel and then went on there. And so nobody could say, nobody could pin him down. When you got an office, well, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. I didn't promise that. Right. What I will say, though, is that what Trump did that Obama also did was in some way channeling a certain kind of shared voice that people uh, were feeling. Of course, Obama was channeling the bourgeois liberal anti-Bush voice that was pretty obvious. And Trump, in many ways, was channeling a number of voices from far-right white nationalist Nazis to just down-and-out working-class white people. But that channeling of it into what I consider to be an utterly fraudulent candidate in both 2008 and in 2016 I think this is something that we should be carefully thinking about. Pascal, what do you think? I think that this is really the nature of what American politics has become in the presidential 
uh, level is that basically what these individuals are are, are glorified pitchmen for a marketing platform that's that's, pre, that's put together by you know their team beforehand, and they're they're expected to sell it in a way to get people to buy into it. That you know we we these, these they are they are basically conveyed to us like a product that we want instead of being able to actually deeply criticize and, and analyze their policies. And plus, we have to understand something, man. We're talking about, you know, we're two generations away from, like, the new left period in American history in which we had people who were really, really rooted in some kind of left alternative oppositional politics. We're talking about a generation of kids who have grown up in the post-Reagan era with all of this digitized technology, online media, the Internet, so on and so forth, which has provided very good alternative platforms as well. But at the same time, man, we're very divorced for, from a period of substantive, hardcore movement politics in this country. So it, it's not surprising that in the, in the 21st century, uh, you know, after, after you know, 25, 30 years of straight neoliberal post-Reaganite, post-Clintonite policies, that, you know, the merging of neoliberalism with identity politics was such a valuable, valuable tool for the ruling class, for the power elite, because what it did is that it allows the illusion that racism is over to be the pretext for implementing an agenda that most whites wouldn't be able to do themselves because it can't be that bad. This is a guy who's post-racial. Come on, what do you mean Obama sent 35 troops into Africa? Give me a break. I don't believe that. So it becomes almost impossible to, to expect that this figure would do something nefarious. And in, the, in, 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 the, in Trump's case, what Trump is basically doing is a different type of identity politics. Exactly. Is that he's basically somewhat playing on the notion that, you know, you know, the beautiful white America of the 50s that you knew is now lost. Yes. You know, saying it's that, you know, empire has fallen. You know, it's not the same old country. You know, Jimmy's on heroin, Jane's an alcoholic. What are we going to do? Why is this happening? So, you know, he's using a different type of identity politics to explain a phenomenon that is affecting everyone regardless of color, which is the collapse of capitalism in the 21st century, primarily due to the neoliberal order, which is glorified privatization that we've had for the last 35 years, which the Democrats have been more effective at implementing, by the way, particularly because they've been able to put brown, black, feminist, gay, and lesbian faces on that agenda as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'll have a piece uh, in Counterpunch magazine uh, in a probably in a month or so, uh, about exactly what you were just talking about, Pascal. I would push back against the idea that Trump won uh, because it was, you know, the triumph of the white working class as the narrative has been fashioned. And if anything, uh, if it's the triumph of anything, I think it's the triumph of what should correctly be called white identity politics, that in, in a sense, Trump basically is the inverse Obama. You know, I, I would push back I mean, against that. I would, I, put, I would actually push back against that. I mean, when you when you look at the fact that Trump got you know more black men, you know, that that than Romney. When you look at the fact that in a lot of places that Obama won, those those people who you know identified themselves as 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 liberals were voting for Trump. He got a lot of those people. I don't think it's just. I think that's. I think that can be a component of it for sure. I, I, and I would not discount that. But I think there's more to it than that. I think I think it's actually a blowback against Obama. I think with what Obama, you had a person who said a lot of stuff and didn't really pin it down. And we didn't know really what you meant. And then you got in there and you were a failed president. And I think people I think there are a lot of people who are not necessarily uh, who are not who are not white. 
you know, you got to look at the amount of Hispanics that that, that that Trump actually won, the amount of blacks that he won. These are people who heard in Trump something that they would say would say is real talk. Like Trump can say what regardless of what we all think about him, Trump can say something today. And then if, if you say, well, that's not don't think that's wrong. I, I don't care. Like, I don't care. I, this is straight talk. I'm just going to tell you what I think. You know, I'm just going to tell you how I feel. And that is the opposite of who Obama was. Now, I actually think if Obama had done something for the working class people, I don't think we'd have a President Trump. If he had been There's no question in my mind about that. Yeah, if a simple question you have to ask. If Obama had a booming, serious, deep level recovery of massive job growth, real wage growth, I mean, a serious recovery where the economy was actually doing well, do you think there'd be any question of, of uh, the existence of, of a Trump presidency? No. I doubt that. Of course yeah. not, but 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 it has to be said, and I I'm I will dig this up and uh, share it with you guys later. But um, you know there was an interesting study that was put together, and I don't remember the researcher who did it, so I'll I'll have to find it. But they did an they did a study of the demographics that actually backed Trump, and and what they found was that it was less about uh, a person's class orientation, less about their income, and more actually about their proximity to immigrant communities. That really much of Trump's base was not necessarily, and I'm not suggesting that working class issues aren't part of this, of course they are, and I'm not suggesting that neoliberalism and free trade and all of these other issues, that they're not part of it, of course they are, but actually the data shows that the closer uh, a working class white person lives to Mexicans, the more likely they were to vote for Trump. The closer they live in proximity to people from Central America, or to Haitians, or to whomever, the more likely they were to go for Trump. In other words, there is a white identity component that is built in. I don't, and I'm going to let it alone. I don't think that's necessarily white identity. I think, I think, I think what you find is that some of these people, rightfully and sometimes, and maybe even sometimes wrongfully, but be, know that they've been displaced by these workers. That doesn't mean you necessarily hate immigrants or you necessarily hate Mexicans. You hate what is happening in terms of the, in terms of you feel like your culture is being overrun. You feel like you know. And sometimes there is a correlation that your jobs are being taken. So I don't think that means that you say, I'm white and I just want to take my country back. Sometimes you feel the effects of globalism in your backyard. And that that's probably a point where we all disagree. But Well, I'm not sure that we disagree. I think the issue is more about how it is expressed. While that may be a component of it, the expre- the political expression of it is not, we're going to get, you know, we're going to get your jobs back. It's, we're going to get the jobs back away from those Mexicans, away from those immigrants or what have you. I think that that is a fundamental part of what the Trump campaign was. Make America great again is a very loaded phrase, and it doesn't only mean what it purports to mean, if you know what I'm saying. Well, I understand what you're saying, but the thing is, it was interesting. There was an article in the New York Times that basically the title of the article was Sorry, liberals, it wasn't big. Trump didn't become president just because of bigotry. And what they say is that based on certain data, that one of the factors that contributed to uh, – that Trump's win is that one. Yes, he had a large segment of his population voter voter demographic that were not working class, but he also earned more working class votes than the Democratic Party has in maybe three or four election cycles. Not only that, there's a correlation between how close Trump voters were to locations that had been had their jobs outsourced and their turnout. Than, than people had realized. So I, I am not denying what you're saying, Eric, that uh, there is a component of racial nationalism and feeling of loss of, you know, white ascendance 
that Trump tapped into. But what I'm saying is that at a fundamental level, the, the rise of Donald Trump is a direct consequence of the economic failures of the Obama presidency. Mm-hmm. Listen, there was a report done by a Harvard Business School uh, economist that came out last week, and I posted it, that stated that 95% of the job growth under the Obama presidency were low-wage temp jobs. Yep. I mean, this is obscene. Yeah, well, that's and that's ninety-five percent of the job growth. Well, I mean, you know how one of the there's a phenomenon that has gone on with the Democrats and Obama that I found so disingenuous. I call it the Obama two-step. Is that he will give you this demonstration that he's done this wonderful progressive thing, and he make you think, "Wow, my president is really doing it," and then he will stab a knife in your back with the real neoliberal agenda. That way, and you'll be like, "What just happened?" And if there's any demonstration of, of that, is with this attempt to show brag about how unemployment is now down below 5%. Well, unemployment is down below 5% because, as we know, unemployment numbers, numbers don't count people who have, who have stopped looking for jobs. Well, it yeah. doesn't count people who have fallen out of the economy. It doesn't, it and doesn't what's so noxious about using that really duplicitous data point is that the labor participation rate, which is a more accurate representation of the number of Americans that are actually working, is the highest under Obama that it's been in over 35 years. Yeah, because the U the U six the U six number. The number of people who are yep. sitting out. Yep, the U six number, which includes not only unemployed but the underemployed and those who have given up looking for work and those who are spread out over two or three jobs. I agree. I just want to make the final point here, and then we got to go to break. I I don't disagree with what you're saying, Yvette and Pascal. I don't disagree. What I'm suggesting, though, is that those economic conditions that we all agree are there, I think that those are manifested through Trump in ways that are not working class issues, the manifestation of working class issues, but rather the manifestation of far right, dare I say, fascist type tendencies that have been in this country forever and that remain in this country albeit latent up until the expression under Trump. I don't think that that's something that should be minimized and frankly I think that too many people um, are trying to explain Trump and the Trump phenomenon by saying it was this or it was that. It was this one thing and it was that one thing. No, obviously it was a combination of many things, but I don't think that we should whitewash it either. And I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying that generally. Well, I know I, I agree. I, I, I agree. I agree. And I, I I would not want to whitewash it also and say that this is it's, it's Nazism and it's all fascism. I mean, if we look at the exit polls, that was a great, that was a piece um in the upshot that was in the Times which said that like 20% of self-identified liberal, you know, white, self-identified liberal white working class voters, according to exit polls, and 38% of those, you know, who said they wanted more liberal policies went for, you know, that Obama's went for Trump. I mean, so, so you have to wonder why were these people who were identifying, according to the exit polls, as liberals switching over to Trump? I, I don't believe that those people necessarily became racist or fascist. I think they became desperate for someone who was speaking to, 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 to what they wanted to see and what they wanted to manifest in their communities and in their lives. 
Agreed. Much more to say on that. Let's take a break. Uh, on the other side of the break, we'll pick up right there. I'm talking with Yvette Carnell and Pascal Robert. You should follow their work. Yvette is the founder of BreakingBrown.com. You can follow her work there as well as on her uh, YouTube channel and, and check out her call-in show. And Pascal Robert writes for Black Agenda Report regularly. Follow his work there. Stick with us here on Counterpunch Radio. We will be right back. No, no, the living ain't easy In these times No, the living ain't easy No, no, in these times No Radio. I'm chatting with Yvette Carnell and Pascal Robert. We were talking uh, before the break about Obama and Trump and sort of trying to place this on a larger uh, sociological continuum, but also historical continuum. And I want to return to Obama since we're really kind of taking a retrospective look at at, at Mr. Wall Street Obama. And um, one thing that that, uh, Pascal, you mentioned very briefly uh, in the first half of our conversation, and I want to touch on, this is about foreign policy. And what Obama has been, uh, well depending on who you ask, either failing at or being incredibly successful at, depending on how you look at it, having to do with foreign policy. And so, um, Pascal, I wanted to just ask you, when we look at Obama's foreign policy, looking back at these last eight years, what kind of a foreign policy was it? Was it a successful one? And how do you define success from the perspective of the empire? 
Well, I think that to define success from the perspective of the empire is to, based on questioning what exactly is the goal of the empire. And I think that since the rise of September 11th, the goal of American empire and the enterprise of American empire was to basically play a zero-sum game against counter-hegemons. When I mean counter-hegemons, what does that mean? To neutralize the effectiveness of the Chinese and the Russians, to be players on the global chessboard under the, uh, under the real goal. What the real goal is, is resource control to make sure that America was able to maintain dominion and control of resource points in the Middle East, in Africa, to, to the detriment of particularly the Chinese, the Russians, and the, 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 the developing BRIC alliance that tried to make some type of some type of noise in the 21st century, and that the goal of the United States was basically to neutral, use the pretext of the war on terror as a means to enter military militarily into these resource-rich geographic points of location to act as a kind of you know monopoly force in controlling all of those resources to the detriment of a counter-hegemon or people who challenge America's global authority. And I think that what o Obama did was basically he was very sloppy in his ability to really uh, effectively, effectively implement that in that he did, you know, he, you know, he took out Gaddafi, uh, he, he, he massive bombing in Syria, uh, you know, and, and so on and so forth. But the, the sheer carnage and damage and blowback refugee crisis that was caused by him picking up the mantle of the global global enterprise of American empire was just so, just frankly, just so, so unprofessional and just so sloppily done that it became obvious that he, he, he had done the impossible and just not only doubled down on Bush's foreign policy, but just made it worse. I mean, this man caught, I mean, I don't think it's a debate in my mind, and I'm sure it's not in yours as well, Erica, that Barack Obama could be literally blamed for the greatest refugee crisis since World War II. Do people understand what that means? I mean, do we really understand what that means? That destabilizing Libya and basically supporting these jihadis through our proxy in in Saudi Arabia has gutted, has destroyed the Middle East in ways that even Bush didn't do. That you now have people living Syria, Lebanon, parts of Africa in tens, if not hundreds of thousands, and pouring into Europe like they're running away from what the Nazis. I mean, this, this, this is Obama's legacy on the foreign policy stage, militarizing, you know, 35 African countries, you know, increasing military, uh, military contributions to Saudi Arabia that's financing terrorism all over the world. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's dumbfounding the degree in which this man has horrifically just, just shed blood on the global stage and gets an absolute pass in the eyes of most people who consider themselves liberal. And you know what's interesting about that, Pascal and Yvette? Um, one thing that I find particularly uh, just difficult to swallow is that what, what Pascal was saying. It's like, you know, he gets a pass on, on, you know, Africa, on expanding AFRICOM and putting U.S. military in literally every single country on the African continent, with the exception of Zimbabwe and Eritrea. Um, he gets a pass on that. He gets a pass on most things. And you know what he's not getting a pass on? He's not getting a pass on the resolution about Israel right now. And isn't it interesting that Obama, who's given literally uh, tens of billions 
billions of dollars to the Israelis, helping them modernize their air force, pushing for huge aid packages to Israel, that he is now being tarred and feathered over the one very, very minor, very superficial um, uh, slight against Netanyahu and the Israelis. It's like it's like upside down political analysis, Yvette. Well, no, it's, Israel doesn't play those games. I mean, even when we talk about symbolism, like, you know, the African-American community loves to talk about who this person has disrespected Obama and this person. Nobody disrespected Obama more than Netanyahu. Like That's that, that sure. nobody, nobody did that. And for the longest time, like he just got a pass. And I, you know, it's funny. It was very funny to me. I, I actually wasn't expecting Obama. I, I expected Obama just to kind of go along, even with this UN resolution. I know it doesn't have the teeth that people would like it to have, but I didn't expect it to happen. And when he did that, I said, okay. And and he has been, I mean, he has been, and not only just him, I mean, they've been saying they've been kicking people out of, uh, you know, their diplomatic circles and all that stuff, but they don't care. Like, they have decided that they're going to get what they want. Like, Israel decided they're going to get what they want, and they're not playing those kind of games. They're not playing games with anybody. So it's 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 just, it's, it's, it's interesting to me in terms of, yeah, like, he's done all this stuff for you. Like, the people who are supporting him in this country, the people who are supporting him in this country, most the people who are his, his most fervent supporters in this country, he hasn't done anything for. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he's 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 done he's done stuff to to neutralize them and kind of keep them with their stagnant wages. Half of black people make like under fifteen dollars an hour, and and working class people, white people, aren't doing great either. I mean, that's why a lot of them voted for Trump. But even but, but so when you look at that, you're wondering he didn't do anything for you, and you're his biggest fan, and he did everything for Israel, and now Netanyahu is calling him everything but a child of God. So it is upside down. Yeah, well, and and specifically the way that the way that his foreign policy is going to be remembered, right? If you look at these these media spin, you know, spin masters who are crafting this narrative, right? What are the cornerstones of Obama's foreign policy? It is the Iran nuclear deal, and uh, I mean, I, I I struggle to even find anything else. I I suppose the disastrous war in Libya, although I don't think that anybody wants to parade that as some kind of an accomplishment. So if anything, normalization of relations with Cuba. Oh yeah, all right, Cuba. Okay, I give you, I give, I give that one, even though that's also kind of uh, well. I mean, is there? What I'm getting at, and I'm sort of articulating it poorly here, but is Obama's politics of superficiality exactly what his foreign policy has been? In other words, his accomplishments are mostly cosmetic and mostly superficial, and the disastrous implications of his blunders have worldwide impact. I think I think they they are replicated on the foreign policy stage, yeah. but he does not have the ability to manifest uh, uh, illusory victories like the Obamacare on the international stage. What I'm saying is that there are people who will try to say that Obama had a great economy because unemployment went down to 4.9%, or that Obama was a great president because he got Obamacare passed. So you will hear that. I've never heard anyone say that Barack Obama even had a remotely good foreign policy. I've never heard anyone say it. it's it's almost unequivocally clear. Well, they'll say they'll say even they, the Obama most, killed Bin Laden, though. Don't forget, Obama yeah, I mean, killed Bin Laden personally, single-handedly, barehanded. He killed him. Yeah, but I mean, the degree into which the middle the Middle East and the Muslim world is upside down. As, third, as a direct consequence of Obama's policy, I don't think that Obama killed Bin Laden's shtick. It really, really 
uh, neutralizes the sheer damage. This guy, listen, Obama killed Bin Laden, but Obama also watched the birth of ISIS. ISIS was not a factor until he got in the office. That's a fact. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, so, you know, when you, when you think in those terms, you know, we have a whole new, you know, Saudi, uh, Saudi ally-financed terrorist regime that's on that's in the atmosphere that didn't even exist before under Obama's watch. I think that, you know, the uh, killing of bin Laden only goes so far to absolve Obama of the rather horrific foreign policy uh, uh, job that he's done while president. Um, Yvette, I want to ask you this question. Obviously, if you want to jump in on anything Pascal was saying, go for it. But, um, one of the things that strikes me just in looking at the news since Trump's uh, election victory is the fact that Obama is essentially laying the groundwork for all of the worst nightmarish <laughs> things that we thought Trump might want to do. Here's just one example from a news item today. Obama signs the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017, right? This is pretty standard. Every year you have this appropriations and it's always loaded with all kinds of really awful stuff. One of those awful things that it's loaded with this time is a neat little provision to send high-level military delegations for cooperate cooperative activities with Taiwan, which flies in the face of long-standing policy about how the U.S. Maintains, exactly, about how the U.S. maintains uh, c- connections both with Taiwan and especially, of course, with China. Obama signed that, not Trump. Now, we know what Trump's rhetoric about China is, and we know yep. Trump is revving up a very dangerous game of brinksmanship with China, uh, and yet it is Obama that lays the groundwork for him to be able to do that. It wasn't Trump's pivot to Asia. It was Obama's pivot to Asia. It's Obama's legacy that Trump is going to ride into a confrontation with China. Well, even when you even when you look at like the executive power, like the power of the executive branch, it you know, and then look at the ways that Obama has helped expand there. Every you know, from the kill list that he has in terms of who you can kill overseas, even if they even if they happen to be you know be citizens. You know, when you look at when you look at all of that. That's been Obama. So when you ask yourself, if you don't like, if when Trump comes into office and you don't like something that Trump is doing, and you ask yourself, oh my God, how is he able to do that? Well, look at how Obama expanded the executive branch. Yep. He did that. Like he is so, it's so much of, when I, even when I look at it in terms of foresight, even when I kind of look into the future, so much of the stuff that I know is that, 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 that's going to fall onto Trump. But when you ask yourself, who paved the way for that? Who gave him that kind of power? Even when you look at all these executive orders, I know a lot of people say, well, a lot of people have to, no, 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 Obama did a lot of stuff too. And I guarantee you, you know, Trump is going to, Trump is going to outpace him. So you have to look at ways in which Obama did not restrain himself in that office and did not abide by the constitution in terms of what he was supposed, even in terms of declaring war. We're dropping bombs on places that America doesn't, most citizens don't even know we're dropping bombs. We're doing stuff in Yemen everywhere. We, you know, starting new wars and you're not going before Congress to get some kind of, you know, to get approval. You just decided, you know, you, we've just decided, Obama's just decided we can do this on our own. Okay. And you don't think that Trump is going to use that, the full weight of that authority and a little bit more, but you did this and everybody's loving Obama. And he did all of, he set the ground, set the groundwork for all of this. Yeah, exactly. And and again, when you, when you look at Obama's legacy and you look at what he's managed to actually 
accomplish, quote unquote, it's it, it's 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 rather staggering. So you'll have Obama in 2008 promising, uh, you know, we're going to close Guantanamo. Well, here we are in 2016. Guantanamo is not only is it not closed, it's an integral part of what the U.S. does in terms of its uh, so-called war on terror. I mean, everything from Obama has really proven to be merely facade and, and frankly, not much more. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. Let's not always forget the role of his expansion of the surveillance state with the NSA. And, and now let's not also not, not forget the way in which he egregiously but went after and prosecuted journalists who were whistleblowers under the Espionage Act, tortured Bradley Manning. I mean, this guy has been a nightmare. And this goes back to your point that it, did Obama get away with things that no you know, milquetoast white Republican or Democrat could get away with? I'd say absolutely. Yep. absolutely. I mean, Barack Obama assassinated a U.S. citizen in Yemen without any judicial, uh, judicial due process. Obama has also Obama has also done things that if Reagan would have done it in the 1980s it would have literally brought millions into the streets for instance Obama's Carsey which we talked about here on the show last week uh, uh, the Central American uh, essentially the Central American version of Plan Colombia I mean this is billions of dollars sent by Obama nobody else this was an Obama initiative into places like Honduras El Salvador uh, and and other countries in Central America America to militarize their police forces, to basically have them acting as a de facto uh, wing of the U.S. military and the DEA. That's incredible. So it's almost like an AFRICOM strategy, but in Latin America. Essentially, I mean, yes, you have Southcom, you, but you also have uh, Plan Colombia for South America. You have the Merida Initiative for Mexico, which Obama is a big proponent of, and then you have CARSI, which is Obama's real centerpiece for Latin American strategy, which is in effect the backing of right-wing reactionary governments and uh, you know, basically paramilitary police forces. It's not surprising. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean listen, Obama was a, was the president who was able to oversee the complete collapse of the uh, Chavezista, the Bolivarian Revolution. His encouraging of the Soviets to overproduce oil has helped devastate the BRICS, has basically undercut Venezuela, uh, you know, kind of put a, put the kibosh in that regard. So in some ways, you know, his, his foreign policy has clearly been a disaster, but in terms of kneecapping progressive political forces, particularly in Latin and South America, particularly the BRICS who are considered to be a better alternative than than, than NATO, he has, through his use of, of petro diplomacy, been able to kind of put a, a slight dagger in some of those counter-hegemonic forces, particularly the BRICS, particularly the Russians, and definitely Venezuela and the, uh, the uh, Bolivarian Revolution that was brought up by, by Hugo Chavez. No doubt about it. Um, well, before we before we start wrapping up, I don't know, Yvette, if you wanted to jump in with any other additional comments. Oh, no, I agree with everything you said. I agree with everything you said, but no, I don't need to jump in, but no. I appreciate it. Um, so I, I guess the question that I want to then raise in the final uh, few minutes that we have here is, um, first of all, what is it that, what what kind of a president is Obama going to be remembered as? I mean, 
are we I, I said in 2008 when I was I was fearful of what Obama was going to what was going to bring I was fearful and unfortunately I think I was proven correct on most of my fears um I was afraid that eventually Obama would not only uh, be a neoliberal disaster and imperialist abroad but that he would be remembered as one of the greatest American presidents in history that there would be high schools named after this man that there's going to be an entire uh, historical cult of personality around Around him, that his whole legacy will be completely whitewashed to the point where we're going to be forced to talk about Obama the way that the way that you know they talk about uh, some of the well, quote unquote, greatest presidents. Right now, I'm not so sure that it's going to be quite that rosy for Obama's legacy now, especially considering Trump. But how do you view, Yvette, how do you view the way in which Obama's legacy is going to be presented in the next few decades? Honestly, I think Obama will be remembered as a more mediocre president as time goes by. Right I now, agree with that. You know, right now, we're, we're kind of basking in Obama. He's leaving. He's a fairly young president, so he's going to be around for a while to kind of defend himself and defend his own legacy. Which, and, and I think he's going to be more vocal than we let on. He said during an interview, well, I have to be quiet for a while, which means he's not going to be quiet forever. He's not going to go off into the sunset. Like I said, he's a fairly young guy. But I think as time goes by, especially when people see the ease with which Trump takes apart what little he's done in terms of Obamacare and a few other things, when they see how he undoes that, you have to look back and say, you know what? The, 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 the little stuff that I thought was great stuff and, and stuff like that, it must not have been if you could undo it that quickly. It wasn't anything because he doesn't really have much in the way of accomplishments anyway. And, and that and that and that the, even even Obamacare was just to kind of put pharmaceutical companies in the money flow. That's really what that was. So I think as time goes on and I think especially as working people, working people, liberals, uh, African-Americans, when these people look, listen, like Obama's gone and my condition is worse. I am worse off than I was before. I am worse than I was before. I mean, I, I enjoyed having somebody who looked and sounded like him. He, he looked progressive. When I looked at him, he made me proud. But when I think at a certain point, people are going to have to look at their material condition and say to themselves, like, I really, I, I, I really did not improve. When you see your kids now going to charter schools and you see that Obama, you know, put, put, put money behind those charter schools, you know, his, his Duncan, his secretary, you know, his, 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 the guy who was in charge of the Department of Education, when you see what he did to put that in place for your child and will probably leave your child in a school that's failing to go to a charter school where it's the uh, school to prison pipeline as well, especially for black kids, you have to ask yourself, you're going to have to have a moment of reckoning where you say, you know, Obama didn't do what I thought he did in terms of helping my life. So I think when we kind of get away from the afterglow of Obama, give it a couple years, I think people will start to kind of resolve themselves to the fact that he didn't do he didn't do anything for me. I, I, I know that Pascal, you, you were agreeing with what Yvette was saying, but I just want to ask her a quick follow up here. Do you think, though, that that is also true for black America or is there going to be a narrative? And this is one of my fears about uh, about this particular aspect of it. Is there going to be a narrative that takes hold that once again, uh, uh, white people just couldn't allow a black president to be successful a black man to be successful in other words that there was a that there was a conspiracy against obama to deny him the right that every other president has had to establish a legacy and blah 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 in other words is that false narrative going to be peddled to uh to and among black people it's already being peddled it's already being peddled 
Like, but I think it's going to fail. I think it's it's, it's going to be short lived. No, I, I, don't, I, think don't, think gonna, I don't think it's going to. I don't think it's going to be. I don't think it's. I I would I would disagree with Pascal here. I think I think I think there I think there is a is a is a large. I think there is a growing number of African Americans who are going to realize what I just said in terms of as time goes by, he's going to be viewed as more and more mediocre. I think no, I agree with that. Another, That's what I'm agreeing with you, right? But no, I think there's another section of African Americans who might even be the majority, who will still stick to this because they they're already when I when I when I speak to people, what they're already telling me is that you know the Republicans wouldn't let him get anything done. Yeah. And it, and it's almost like on on some level when you talk to some people, we're so desirous of 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 of, of having this. You know, he was and I and, and I'm and I'm sympathetic towards this because he was the first. Like there have been a whole bunch of white men. Right. But he was the first black president and we want to see him succeed. And so even as we protected him in the White House, we are protecting his legacy because we see ourselves as tied to that legacy. If he is seen as failed, then there is a worry kind of deep inside us that if he is seen as a failure, then we, too, are seen as failures. We, too, are viewed as failures. So it's part of our job to kind of buttress him. Because if we don't buttress him, then we'll never get anything. You know, that kind of, it's not even black respectability in that sense. It's the sense of. It's redemption. This is a whole redemption. Like he, he yeah. redeems us. We need to, we need to have him be the representative to show that we can do things. He's a, he, he vindicates us as a people. I, this is where I agree with the vet. I think that the determination of how Barack Obama is going to be remembered in the psyche of the black community is going to come straight down class lines. College-educated, professional black people are going to do everything they can to protect Obama because he validates their whole enterprise of basically eventually becoming compradors for the system anyway. I think working class and poor black folk who suffered the most because of his, his, his malicious neglect will realize that this guy didn't do anything for us and basically we're better off without him. Well, I so ask, I do I, agree with the event that, I, I that there will be a split. Sorry, Pascal. Go ahead. Go ahead. But I think that it will definitely come down along class lines because that's what I've seen in the last four years in the tail end of Obama's presidency. That most of you know the the petite bourgeois educated professional folks that I've known intimately 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 my whole life are the ones that are the most wedded to defend this Obama enterprise. When I talk to blue collar working class folks that I interact with in my neighborhood, I see they're like, yeah, he didn't do jack for us. Well, and I will add one thing to what Pascal just said. One thing that black people are very grateful for, if you look at, there's a great racial map of the demographics in this country. And like blue represents white people. And like, you know, when you're a black person, you live around black people, you tend not to think about it, of how, of how white this country is and how we live in certain centers, right? So you see that this, the whole country's blue. And there are whole parts of the country where they don't see very many, they don't see very many black people. And so what people, what black people are also grateful for is that Obama didn't have scandals in his presidency, he didn't have he didn't have an affair. There was no Lewinsky. There, there were a lot of things that didn't happen, and they're grateful for that because he presented black life in a way that white people said, "Well, I might not like his policy, but they seem like decent people." And I think people are great. I think I think you will find that African Americans are grateful for too, for that too. Now I understand that that's symbolism, but that's very very powerful for people who have been treated the way that African Americans have been treated in this country. You know, one one thing that worries me about I, I hear what you're saying, both of you. But one thing that worries me is the precedent we have with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was probably the single most destructive force, especially for black America uh, in decades. Right? Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the establishment. 
they, they, but the funniest thing is we just woke up to what Bill Clinton did in the 90s right around now. Well, and, that's, and that's what, what I'm about to get at. I think Obama's going to follow Bill Clinton and then 20 years we'll be like he was a horrible president. Well, mm-hmm. but see, that's that's an interesting point because, Pascal, are you suggesting that right now the majority of Americans, if you ask them, would say that Bill Clinton was a horrible president? I would say no. I think a lot more would than they did in the night. Of when course. Was well, that's, but that's always the case. The further you get away from a presidency, the more the negative side of it uh, comes out increasingly. So I, I do agree with you there. But my worry is that Obama is even slicker and better uh, on the, you know, let's call it the legacy PR than Clinton was. Or well, let me is. tell you why I'm not as worried. I'm not, I'm not as... Uh, convinced that Obama will be able to walk away into the sunset as you know the great the great president is that the media landscape has changed you know 20 years over the last 20 years mainstream media was controlling the narrative and the direction of how people perceived history and real-time events with the rise of online media alternative media sources all of this you know scandal what they call fake news when we know that the mainstream media has been fake news from the beginning and I don't call alternative media fake news. I call it actually the better news or the you know the vanguard news. With the rise of cord cutters, you know you have over a million Americans who don't even watch mainstream TV anymore. They get the news from online. I think that there's a lot more of an opportunity for the narrative of Obama, who is the first president who's experiencing that reality, to be shaped by people who are not on the take by the mainstream media corporate dollars. And that, to me, opens up the opportunity for a clear understanding of how nefarious his legacy, how nefarious he's been in implementing this damaging legacy has been on the American body public. What do you think, uh, Yvette, what do you think is, um, is it going to take for uh, the left to be able to learn the lessons, if any, from eight years of Obama. Are there any lessons that the left, such as it is, can take from this? Or is this uh, just, you know, a way station onto our next shift from the red tie to the blue tie to the red tie to the blue tie again? Well, I think that, I think, I think, were it, were it not um, for Trump, I think there were some lessons that we could have learned. But what has happened in the shift from from Obama to Trump, that we we really didn't give ourselves the opportunity, um, or the left, most of the most of the left, especially liberals, didn't give themselves the opportunity to kind of think about Obama and what he represented and what he didn't do. They went immediately into, oh my God, Trump is going to be president. What are we going to do? Let me dig a hole and let me hide. So, I, I they, so we went from we went from Obama to hysteria. So we haven't, in order to kind of look back and realize what happened and what needs to happen and, and ways in which we need to organize against policies that, that are detrimental to our lives, we didn't do that because Trump came. And, 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 and the, the things that you saw in the news were basically telling you, you can't worry about anything but Trump. Like you can't, you can't, you can't plan to organize against something that you think Trump may do, or you can't, you can't get there because you, 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 you can't do it that way. You just, and you can't look back. You can't look back at what Obama did, and we can't have a no. We just have to worry about Trump. Like when I talk about, even when I talk about Obama online, or when I talk about him in a video, sometimes people say, "Oh, it's time to move on, Yvette. We can't do this right now. We got, you know." And it's just like, no, we have to have a moment to kind of reflect on how Obama. There's a need for a reckoning. Yeah, there's a need for a reckoning, and and I think I think I think a lot of people on the left are going to skip over that because Trump is here now, and they think that we can't do too. We we we're not we're incapable 
of of looking back and making assessments and looking forward and planning. Yeah, walking. I mean, walking and chewing gum. I think is. Yeah, I think it. we're very capable of that. Um, Pascal, I mean, you can you can jump off, you know, uh, piggyback on anything Yvette was saying. But the question I wanted to just ask you, and and this is, I guess, we're over the time now, so this will have to be the final question. Um, the fact that Obama was the president for eight years after eight years of Bush and just before Trump, is that going to create a myth of, you know, uh, quote unquote, like greatness by contrast? In other words, is there is there the potential, uh, in your opinion, to frame Obama's legacy as sort of this 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 bright shining moment that we had between periods of darkness. Obviously that's how the liberal media is going to frame it, but is that kind of a narrative going to stick in your mind? I think that because of what I spoke of earlier, the the, the really bifurcated media landscape that we have, it's not gonna work as as uniformly because we have so many people who are not just fundamentally not buying the mainstream liberal media spin. So I think that there are, I, my, my point is this, I believe that there will be segments of America that will be vested in believing and pushing the narrative of Obama, the great black president. But I think that there will be a large segment of Americans who will have enough information to counter that and say, no, this guy has been a disaster, and he's the, the disaster that got us Trump. And what I'm finding in my particular spaces of online spaces is that the people who have been the most vehement defenders of Obama, and even in this moment of the, the, the rise of Trump, have been much less willing to defend Obama. Like you have Sandy Darity, he wrote that piece in The Atlantic to counter Tallahassee Coates. A lot of people circulated that, and basically now they're trying to find a way to explain what Obama did. So that's been one major salvo shot at breaking this image of like the perfect black president. Because if someone like Sandy Darity can get a piece in the Atlantic right after Tallahassee Coach, you know, kind of ridiculous hagiography painting Obama as the greatest thing since you know sliced bread, Jesus Christ, and Elvis. Now you have. You know, Darity coming in and saying, like, Obama failed black people completely. So what I'm saying is that there, there is space open for people like us at Black Agenda Report, like Yvette, like Sandy Darity, like others who have been calling this out for eight years. To, to Because this is the thing. We have a record. We have a body of work that detailed what this guy's been doing and how he's been screwing the country over that whole time. His acolytes don't have that body of work. All they have is the problem that they've been pushing to try to defend him. But in the face of the fact that, you know, what had brought this Trump reality is, is a direct correlation of Obama's failure, I think that it will open a space that allows a much more realistic evaluation of his presidency to come forth than if Trump had not won. I think if Hillary had won, I agree with the event that the immediate reaction is to basically, you know, circle the wagons. But I think in four or eight years, we will see a much more balanced analysis of Obama. And I don't think it's going to be as romanticized as many would hope that it would be. 
Very well said. We'll have to leave it there. Um, I want to thank you guys for coming on the show. Again, listeners, uh, I've been chatting with Yvette Carnell, founder of BreakingBrown.com, and Pascal Robert, a uh, contributor at Black Agenda Report. Do follow their work regularly, and uh, I, I think you'll uh, benefit greatly from that, as I know that I have. Uh, so thanks, guys, for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you, as always, and I'll speak to you again next week.